What's going on, everyone? My name is Brian Williams, and I am the pastor of Restoration Church in Traverse City, Michigan. Thanks so much for allowing us into your digital life and tuning in to this message. If you'd like to get involved with anything we have going on, you can do so at restorationtc.com. While you're there, you can find out about events, get to know a little bit more about what we believe, and you can also give a donation. Now, we're set up a little different than most in that we have a community account where 100% of your donation goes directly back into the community, both locally and globally. We've partnered with organizations like Freedom Builders here in Traverse City, World Orphans, and Charity Water. We also have an overhead account that helps fund the mission and vision of the church. Our vision is people following Jesus, and our mission is transparency, community, and change. Thanks again for checking out the message. Now let's get to it. Everything in the last 20 plus years has led to this moment. Everything that's gone on in his life for the last 25 years have all come to this moment right here. Chapter 44, the most important chapter in detours and delays. In in this story of Joseph, this is the most important chapter, not just for the story of Joseph, but probably for the story of Jacob. For the re- this is what changes the brothers completely. Chapter 44. Last week was the start of it. Last week was a turning point. And if you've missed anything in detours and delays, I encourage you to go back and check it out. Start in Why This Family in chapter 37, and then, and then just work your way through. Uh, if you don't have time to watch all of those, at least read through what's gone on for the last 22 years in the life of Joseph. Everything has led to this moment. His, uh, his telling his dreams to his brothers, to his also to his dad, uh, and then the rest of the family to them plotting to murder him and then changing their mind. Judah bringing up and saying, ah, let's not murder the guy. Let's just, let's just sell him. Uh, we're going to put him in this pit. Reuben decided to put him in the pit because he didn't want to kill him. He was going to come back and save him later. And then, uh, and then Judah's like, well, we could we could, we, could, we could leave him in the pit to die, or we can sell him and make some money off of this. So Judah has everybody's attention, his brother's attention, and says, let's just, let's just sell him to these, these uh, Midianite traders, these, these people from uh, the, the Ishmaelite traders. Let's, let's, just, let's just get rid of him, and, and then he'll be done, like he'll be good as gone. And so they do that. That leads to this moment here in Genesis chapter 44. Then Joseph getting sold to Potiphar and then being accused of rape by Potiphar's wife, wife, spending two years in prison, meeting the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and then uh, being forgotten for, for two years, being forgotten. And then all of a sudden he's remembered and now he's in Pharaoh's camp and now he's, he's, he's protected Egypt from from famine. They had seven years of plenty and now they've got seven years of famine. And that's where we find ourselves. And, and so all of the brothers, uh, if, if Joseph's brothers, have to go to Egypt to buy grain. And then Joseph says, I need to see your brother Benjamin, uh, essentially. Now, now they don't know that, that Joseph is, is Joseph. They just think he's the prime minister of Egypt and he's asking a lot of weird questions. All of that all of the dreams, the imprisonment, the accusation of rape, the staying in prison, the, the, the being sold, every, everything 
is all about to come to a head right here. It's like those Christopher Nolan movies where it all starts to tie in, it all starts to make sense, and you don't get it until the end. I still don't get Tenet. I don't know how to figure that one out. I still don't get Interstellar. I, don't, I can't figure that one out either. But uh, for, for the most part, these are, these are things that, that they're all culminating right here in chapter 44. And this is huge for us. Man, I, I'm excited to share it. I'm excited about what this looks like, what it's going to be, uh, what, it, what the implication is for you and for me. And I hope you see that excitement. I hope you hear the excitement. As always, if you've got your Bible, we want you to turn to Genesis chapter 44. That's the chapter that we're in. If you're listening to it on a podcast, well, you're just going to have to take our word for it. But if you're, if you're watching this, if you're sitting at home watching this, I encourage you, get out your Bible. Pause me for a second. Get out your Bible. Get your favorite snack favorite drink, get comfy, and let's dive into chapter 44, shall we? Okay, that sounds good to me. All right, here we go. Then he commanded, remember what happened last week. Okay, let's get a little bit of backstory. Then he commanded the steward of his house. Wait, pause. Remember, they just had a party. They were feasting together. Uh, they thought that they were going to be imprisoned. The, the brothers, that is, they were not. Uh, they get to have a party. Instead, they feast at Joseph's house, and, and Joseph gets them completely wasted. They're drunk. They're drunk in this moment. They, 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 they drink. Remember, they drank and were very merry. That means, yeah, they got drunk. All right. Then he commanded the steward of his house, which is like his right-hand man. He's shown up a few times. He's like Alfred for the Batman movies. I don't know why I keep... I don't know. Then he commanded the steward of the house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. There he is again. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. Phew, they were able to keep the donkeys. That's, that's good. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after them. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. So Joseph is doing one last test for the brothers. He's doing one last thing, and he puts it in Benjamin's sack. He's going to see what, if these brothers are truly remorseful, if they're truly changed men, then this is going to be the ultimate test. Remember last week, he put, not last week, but according to us last week, we read that he put the, the five times as much portion in front of Benjamin. And we don't get any report that the brothers even batted an eye about it. So he, he saw that. That was a small test that he did. Now here's one more test. One more test for the brothers. And he says to, to, to put this cup in there and then to accuse them of taking the cup, this cup of divination. Now, I had to look that one up that, that he, the, from the cup that he practices divination from. Now, this was a, an ancient model of something that they would do to try to make sense of life, to try to, uh, to, to, try to um, predict the future, to make decisions, to be foretelling, like it was a prophetic thing that they would do. So what would happen is, is they, especially in this time, they would have a cup of some kind. And, and there's a few different ways that they would do this. So n one way would be you would put some water in the cup and then you would uh, make it, make some ripples or whatever. And then people would study the ripples and be like, oh, if it goes this way, it must mean that this person is going to betray you. Or if it means this, then they would be able to quote unquote, tell the future based 
based on the ripples of the water. Other times you would pour a little bit of oil in it and whatever shape that the oil made on top of the water, then that would be, that would mean something. And so it was this practice of divination, uh, which was actually pretty common in that day. If you remember, you probably don't remember, but Laban even says that uh, he, he, he realized through divination that um, Jacob was a, a, a man who was blessed by God. And so it's something that is, is in this time. And uh, I don't know that Joseph necessarily, necessarily practiced divination, this, this water divination. It was it's also known as uh, hydromancy, hydromancy. Um, it, it, you don't know if he actually did these things. It was just a cultural thing. And so um, especially in this time. So I think what Joseph is doing is he's signifying that this is a very special cup uh, and, and the brothers are going to be aware of this. And he's still undercover. Joseph is still undercover as the prime minister of Egypt, as, as second in command in Egypt. And so if you are that high up, you probably do practice some sort of uh, hydromancy. And so that's what that means. Uh, I, it was a quick little little thing for me to try to figure that out. The cool thing about it, though, is, in fact, Joseph is using this cup as a cup of divination. I mean, he's, he's figuring out, he's discerning if his brothers are actually who they, uh, now, who they claim to now be, if they've had a change of heart. He's using this cup, the cup of divination, to make that. Now he's not putting water in it and seeing if that's, he's using the cup in a different way, but it's still being used in the same purpose. I don't know. I think that's pretty cool. All right, number eight, or six. I don't know. I can't read or 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 uh, count. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants has found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. They are very, very confident that they didn't do anything. They I just had a great night with Joseph. They just had the, who, they don't even know it's Joseph. They just had this really great night. There's no way, no way possible that any one of the brothers would have done this. Though they're so confident that they're saying, you, you kill the person. Kill the person. Who has the sack? And, and, and we will we'll, we'll, we'll be your servants forever if, 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 the, if you find this cup, which we know is not there. They're so confident in themselves and their integrity, which is kind of odd because we know who the brothers are. But in this instance, they're so confident that there's like, nah, that's not going to happen. He said, verse 10, this is the, the uh, steward. The steward says, he said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Imagine the dismay that they're feeling in this moment. They're starting with, with the oldest, Reuben. If anyone's going to do it, it's Reuben. He already stole his dad's uh, concubine. <laughs> that was a later chapter, earlier chapter. Uh, he's already done stuff like that before. Eh, so if anybody's going to do it, it's going to be Reuben. Judah, nothing. Levi, nothing. Dan, nothing. Um, go through the, the whole list, nothing, until they get to Benjamin. And they open Benjamin's sack, and there's a little bit of a silver showing in that sack. I don't know what extreme disappointment looks like for them, but 
We're going to read about it. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Every man, they, and then they tore their clothes. Remember, this is exactly what happened to Jacob when he learned that Joseph was uh, no more, that he, when the brothers lied to him that, that Joseph was dead, that he had been killed by a wild animal. He tore his clothes and, and was, could not be comforted. The brothers here now are tearing their clothes, and I'm sure in complete shock and just utter disappointment, they're loading their donkeys and return to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground again, just like in the dreams. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Remember that. Underline it if you want to. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Once again, the brothers have an opportunity to just leave scot-free. This is the test. This is the final test for Joseph's brothers, for Judah and the rest of them. They have an opportunity here where they get to leave a brother again, again, and be scot-free. Have no, no, they can, they can leave him. They've got Simeon. They've got, they, they rescued him last time. They, he's, he's in their possession. They can bring back Simeon. All they got to do is just leave Benjamin. All Joseph, all this guy wants is for him, for, for the guy who had the cup to, to, to leave it there to leave him and the cup there. Like, the, the other brothers can go. They are scot-free. They have an opportunity again. All they have to do is give up a brother. It's something they've done before. It's something they've done before. And, and let's, uh, let's see how they respond. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and not... And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. I, I want to make something very clear here real quick. Uh, notice that Judah actually says that his brother is dead. He's speaking about Joseph. Little does he know he's actually talking to Joseph. I'm going to take these off because they're really bothering me this morning. Um, he, he, he's in the past, whenever he's talked about Joseph, the brother who he says is dead, he said that he is no more, that this brother is no more. Now that can mean that the brother is dead, but basically it means that we don't know what happened to Joseph. We, we're not really sure what happened to Joseph. And in this instance, this is the first time that it's recorded at, at least, that he says that his brother is dead. Judah in this moment is confessing the intentions of the brother's hearts. The intention was to kill him. The intention was, he's basically dead to us. He is dead to us. Therefore, he's dead. He's speaking about the intention. His brother isn't actually dead. He's standing right before him. 
But Judah is speaking to the intention that they planned on murdering their brother. And they're guilty of that. They're guilty of that. Notice back uh, in, in verse 16 that he says that God has found out the guilt of your servants. They're innocent in the cup. Joseph knows that they're innocent. They know that they're innocent. So what are they actually guilty of in this moment? What, are, what, is, what does this mean that God has found out their guilt? From before. They've held it, had this guilty conscience. We've talked about this before for 20-some years now. They've had this guilty conscience. They wrestle with it. They try to avoid it. They try to just ignore it completely. But the guilty conscience remains there. And here he is finally confessing that they had a plan to kill their brother. When he says that the brother is dead, he's saying our intention was the brother's dead. Let's see what else he says. This is Judah talking. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes down with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely this he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. And if you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Shoal. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the, little, in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Shoal. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. You guys, this is the most important speech that Judah has ever given. And I'm blown away at how different Judah is now. He's, he's a completely different person than before. Remember, as I said earlier, this is the guy, Judah is the guy who was going to get rid of Joseph, going to, did get rid of Joseph for a few bucks, for, for just some, some money. He, he, he sold Joseph as a slave. This is the guy who only looked out for himself. And here he is pleading with the prime minister of Egypt to please, please let, let Benjamin go, the youngest one. I know he's most favored. I know he holds a special relationship with dad, one that I don't even have right now. And I, this is what I promised him. If I don't bring Benjamin back, my dad is gonna die. If I don't bring him back, my dad is gonna die and I'm gonna have to live with that for the rest of my life. I'm already living with some guilt. I already have guilt in my life and I'm, I'm ashamed of that is what he's saying. And here we are, I have this impassioned plea 
This is all that I've got left. He's, J Judah is putting all of the cards on the table. I'm not a poker player. I've never really played, but I know if you go all in, you just throw, everything is in. This is all, this is the last ditch effort. This is the last thing. I've seen movies where they play poker. This is all of, all of my chips. I'm just putting them all in and I'm resting it here. This is my last plea to the, to the, to, 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 to the, uh, Pharaoh's second in command, the prime minister. This is an incredible turn of character. Uh, in commentaries I've read this week, it's been that this is, this is one of the most impressive speeches ever given. I mean, think about all the speeches, like fictional or real speeches. And, and I'm not a historical person, so I can't tell you about really great historical speeches. I know there's been a few by a few different people. Uh, some that stick out to me are the president, uh, when the aliens attacked in Independence Day, great speech, great speech. I know it's fictional. Uh, there, there's been speech after speech after speech that have been written that is just, oh my goodness, well done. This one, because of who Judah was before, and we see the character of Judah is who Judah is now. Holy cow, what a difference! God wants that difference in you. I hope people can look at you the same way that we're looking at Judah right now and be like, man, I hope people can look at me the same way that we're looking at Judah right now and say, holy cow, what a difference. Oh, I knew you before and you were completely different. What's changed about you? I hope for some of us that that question gets asked of us sometimes. Man, what, what's different about you? There's something so different. We look at Judah here. He's so different. And his brother Joseph notices. Now that's the end of chapter 44. And what a cliffhanger would that be if we stopped right there? But I'm not going to do that to you guys because I think it's really important to see how Joseph responds. And so we're going to do something we haven't done in all of the book of Genesis in this entire series, one through now 44. We've never done this. I'm going to give you, I'm going to go through the first three verses of Genesis chapter 45. This is Joseph's response. Everything is brought to this moment. All the chips are in. Every road has led right here. Joseph's slavery, Joseph's imprisonment, Joseph's rise to ascension, the brothers' guilt, the brothers having to go to Egypt, the brothers having to go to Egypt again with Benjamin, them getting the silver cup put in their sack and then having to go back and do all of this stuff. It all leads to this moment where Judah is finally at his very end. He can't give anything else. He's, he's pleading. In fact, he's asking to take his place. I'm reminded in the Bible that says this is what love is, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Judah is willing to lay down his life for his brother, embodying Jesus. He's a changed man. So Joseph's response 
Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. He's weeping so loud. You can hear him in the other room. It's kind of awkward. Like, if you've ever been around someone crying and you don't know what to do, you just kind of stand there like, what do I do here? Uh, I, uh, they're, they're there. But you're in the other room. You can't, I mean, there's nothing you can do. He's, he's bawling his eyes out. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. They were dismayed. I was like, they're dismayed at his presence? This is Joseph. What do you mean they're dismayed at his presence? What it means is, so Joseph finally reveals that it's him, that it's Joseph. I'm your brother. I'm not dead. I'm alive. The brothers are dismayed? Another way to say that is the brothers are completely stunned. Like the, the jaw drops, the, every single one of them hits the, the, the but you're, you're, what? You're Joseph? So it turns from, 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 from just complete, I can't even believe it. You can't even put words in the mouth. Stunned, absolutely stunned. Now maybe to a point of, oh, revenge. That's why this has been happening to us because Joseph is getting revenge on us. We're surely doomed. They're dismayed because it's Joseph. He's got all the power, all the control. Their life is now in his hands. The life that they tried to take away now has the power to take away their life. So dismayed might actually be the right word. They're, they're dismayed. They, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're afraid of revenge. Oh. And they're freaking out. Because these brothers for the last 20 plus years have been living a life in a famine caused by guilt. If this had played out in any other way, if it, uh, when when Joseph was originally sold into slavery, if maybe maybe Joseph like just think about this hypothetical situation. It's not biblical, so don't take it as that. But just imagine if Joseph had been um, sold into slavery before he had even reached the brothers, the conscience would have been clear for the most part, right? And this reunion would have been so much sweeter. There would have been happy tears. This is somebody who they thought were dead, or at least at the very best, <laughs> a slave somewhere in that town. But because of the guilt in their hearts, the guilt in their minds, the guilt of their life, all they can see is we're doomed. We're utterly doomed. They have a life in a famine. They're a life in a famine caused by guilt.
these last few chapters, we've seen that guilt over and over and over again. That guilt makes connections even when they're not there. Guilt makes us think about things and, and we find ourselves in famines more often than not. And the reason we're in those famines often is it, it's caused by guilt in life. We can look at the what, what these brothers have done. They've tried everything. The brothers have tried everything to get out of guilt. And sometimes you and I do the same thing. So what does it look like to be in a, a, a life in a famine caused by guilt? This is, this is where we start to apply this to ourselves. Now we get this beautiful story and we're going to get to the rest of it, but we need to get through this first um, <clears throat> before we can give you the good news. Because I think a lot of us are mired in a life of famine caused by guilt. Here, here's, here's, I'm, I give you several examples here today. The first thing is, is we stay in addiction. This is what it looks like to be a life in a famine caused by guilt. This, these are the marks of a life in a famine caused by guilt. These are the things that we'll do if we're uh, in a life caused by, of a famine caused by guilt, where we have a guilty conscience our entire, like, we can't let go of that guilty conscience. We can't forgive ourselves for the things that we've done in the past. These are the things that happen to us. These are the, the decisions we make in a, in a life that's in a famine caused by guilt. Does that make sense? So number one is we stay in addiction. We become addicted to something and we stay in addiction. People try to drink their guilt away. People try to eat their <laughs> guilt away. People try to sexually uh, fulfill whatever it is, whatever's haunting them, that thing in the past, whatever it is for you. Like we've all got something that we're holding on to. And some of us to try to abandon those, those thoughts and those feelings and try to make them go away, to just like to, to quiet our heads, we drink. We drink and we drink and we drink. We stay in addiction. We think that alcohol is going to make that go away. And, it, and, and, and here's the thing. It does for a little bit. It makes it go away. You forget about something for a little while. But then you know what happens is alcohol wears off and you're left with yourself again at the end of or in the morning whenever that hangover starts to, to, take away, starts to fade the guilt still is there. So you drink some more because you don't want to remember, you just want to forget. Now I gotta preface this before I go any further that this list of things that we're gonna go through not necessarily always caused by guilt, okay? Not always a famine caused by guilt. Some of these things are just the way that we are. So as we go through this list, we can't judge a person and be like, well, they must be really guilty because of what they're doing. Go back to the judgment sermon. Go back to that whole mini-series we looked at. We can't judge somebody uh, just because, like, and, and assume that they're guilty just because of, of these things. What I'm saying is these are markers for us, for us to look at ourselves. Am I doing it because of this? Am I, am I, am I mired in a famine that's caused by guilt and it's making me do these things? Am I doing all of this other stuff to make sure that... Um, that I don't look guilty or try to cover up my guilt somehow. So the first one was we stay in addiction. Whether it's alcohol, whether it's food, sex, drugs, whatever it is, we try to just cover that guilt up. And it, and it never, ever lasts. Think about the woman at the well. And we don't have time to get into the story because I've got a long list of things to go through. But you think about the woman at the well and she uh, had husband after husband and affair after affair and 
and Jesus is talking to her at the well, and he sees, says, you, you keep going up back to this well that just doesn't fill you up. I have a well that's going to give you life. You just need to drink from it one time, and it's going to come up from within you, and it's going to spill over. But some of us, that guilt causes us to stay in our addictions. Another thing is we work for approval. We work hard, workaholic. We work to earn approval. Maybe from a boss or a coworker or something, we feel guilty about whatever it is that we are, whoever it is that uh, we are, the things that we've done in our past, and so I'm just going to work and I'm going to work and I'm going to work because that's that's I, if I just focus on my work, then I don't have to focus on my guilt. And some of us have built tremendous empires off of our guilt. Some of us have 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 dedicated our lives to working so hard that we never have to face our guilt again. We never have to face our again. We'll, we'll work for approval from other people, for ourselves, from our parents. I don't know what it is, but we work for approval. And that's a, a life and a famine caused by guilt. We think we need to earn that approval somehow because we feel bad about what we've done. Another one is we buy away our guilt. Maybe we've worked so hard for approval and we've built this empire and now it's like, ah, finally, I can, I can just buy stuff so I don't have to feel sad about my life anymore. I can just cover it up. I can buy any sort of drink. I need to go buy a boat. I need to go buy a house. I need to go buy whatever, like, whatever's going to make me, like, there's this huge, huge emptiness in my heart. So maybe if I just buy the best stuff, maybe that's what's finally going to fill up that emptiness in my heart, that guilty feeling. I can just, you know what? I can make myself feel better by the things around me. I need a new coat. I need a new purse. I need a new boat. I don't know. I'm really stuck on the boat thing. Uh, I need, I need a new, what, whatever it is. Like I, but again, like the other things in this list, it's, it's, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. We keep trying to do these things, but At the end of the day, we're still in a famine. We're not treating any of these things that, that are haunting us on the inside. I, I think back to the brothers in this story. They, they're trying to do some of these things. I've got to get through the rest of the list, but they're trying to do some of these things that it's not taking away the guilt. I, I wonder how hard they worked for the approval of their dad, knowing how much they hurt him and what they could have done to stop it. I wonder how hard they worked for him in the fields. I wonder how much stuff they were buying so that they would make themselves feel better, buying presents for other people because they feel bad. Which leads me to the next thing. Some of us serve to atone whatever things that we've done. We dedicate our lives to a life of service because we feel like we, we need to some sort of atonement for things that we've done. So we pour ourselves out for other people. Not for their benefit, but so that maybe our conscience can finally be clear. Yeah, sure, I did that thing in the past. Man, I can't believe I did that. But look at all this good stuff that I'm doing. I'm serving my, my fellow man. Like I'm showing up and serving coffee. Or I'm showing up and being on the worship team. Or I'm showing up and at the homeless shelter. And I'm doing this. And I'm, I'm giving of my time. 
so people can, te- can, can see that, man, I'm not that guilty because look at all this stuff that I'm doing. And we serve to atone. We don't serve just to, to serve because we love God. We serve because we feel bad about what our life is. And I'm like, man, I really need to start focusing on other people and serving other people, which isn't a bad thing. But if we're doing it just to try to get rid of our guilt, it's not going to work. Wherever you're at, I don't know who, this is the the crappy thing. I don't know who's watching. I don't know who's listening. I don't know where you're from, what your background is. But I know that some people just feel like they need to serve and serve and serve because they they feel guilty about other parts of their life. They just, they show up at every single church service, at every single meeting, at every single thing, just because they're trying to avoid the guilt. And they think if they show up, they have some sort of penance that they need to pay for. And so they serve out of requirement of, of paying back whatever it is. This is not, Jesus isn't a loan program. Next thing is we isolate and become a victim. And again, these are, this doesn't mean that if, if, if you do all of these that you're caused by guilt, this is like, if you're like, oh, well, I don't isolate, so I must be okay. These are just examples of, of, of things that we do when we are guilty, when we feel guilty and we're in this famine caused by guilt. These are the things that we tend to go towards. It, it can be any of these things on the list. And one of them is we isolate and we become a victim. Well, they don't know what I've gone through. They don't know, uh, they don't know my life. And so I'm going to isolate and I'm going to lash out at anyone that tries to speak into my life. And we become a victim. We think that we are the victim. Our guilt somehow manipulates everything to think that we're a victim. Well, if that hadn't happened to me when I was a child, well, if she wouldn't speak to me that way, then maybe I wouldn't have done this. Well, if she would just give me what I want sexually, then I wouldn't have to go look at porn all the time. But, you know, we, be- we become a victim. I've- and that's something that I've heard from a man in a group at one point. It was like, his wife wasn't giving him what he wanted, essentially, and as much as he wanted. So he thought he was justified in looking at porn all the time because he didn't have, he, he, he was playing the victim. He was isolating and becoming a victim because he felt he deserved something more. And guilt always makes you feel like you deserve less. But you'll mask it and think that you deserve more. Satan will, will, will convince you that, ah, you're not that bad. You're not like that person. You're the victim. See, if, if that wouldn't have happened to you, then you wouldn't have done that. You wouldn't have. You don't flip people off in traffic just because you want to. You do it because you're a victim of, of how you were raised in your family. It's okay. We isolate and become a victim. We can't see our guilt anymore. And everything is all woe is me. And we can't grow. We can't grow. Because everything happens to us. Lastly, we just stay busy. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to... Nope, not going to talk about it. 
I'm just going to stay busy. That way, I don't ever have to slow down and think about it. Some people will not slow down because they then, in the quiet, in the stillness, the guilt starts flooding in. They start remembering everything that they've done. They start thinking about all, all, all of their past and the mistakes that they've made, and they can't handle the silence. And so I'm just going to stay busy. I'm going to work as much as I can. I'm going to serve as much as I can. I'm going to uh, be as social as I possibly can, just so that I never have to spend a moment alone and then once I get home at night I'm going to pop a few pills make sure I can fall asleep and then wake up in the morning ready to go again we just avoid it avoiding it is never going to defeat it I don't I don't know of a single person that has uh, <laughs> has been diagnosed with cancer and just avoids everything altogether in hopes of defeating it if you avoid it, it just grows. It, it just continues to grow and it will kill you. If we only avoid our guilt, it grows like a cancer. And it affects every single area of our lives. So how do we defeat guilt? How do we defeat it? If you feel like you're stuck in a famine that's caused by your guilt you're tired you, nothing's going right we have a way to defeat it and here's the thing we look back to the brothers and we see that there there was no amends that could be made for the for the brothers they there there was nothing they could do there was nothing they could say their lives were solely in joseph's hands they couldn't make amends. They couldn't buy themselves out of it. They tried to say, hey, we, we brought back the grain. We brought back everything. We brought, we, we brought everything back. They couldn't buy themselves out of this guilt. They, they tried to make amends. They tried to, uh, to buy themselves out of it. They tried to just use money to make this go away. And the guilt still returns. They couldn't, uh, they, they couldn't return anything. They couldn't be good enough. None of that was going to cut it for Joseph. None of it was going to cut it for Joseph. All Joseph wanted them to do was confess. That's it. That's all he wanted for this restoration to happen was a confession. He didn't care about money. He didn't care about the amends that could have been made. He didn't care about uh, returning the silver cup. He, he, they, they couldn't return the silver cup to, to make life better. He just wanted a confession and he wanted to see a changed heart. And when Judah started speaking and saw that Judah would take the place of his brother, Joseph had seen enough. See, in, back in verse 16, it says that God has found out the guilt of your servants. That's Judah speaking. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Again, they weren't guilty of the cup. But they were guilty. And Judah finally realized 
that he was guilty. And he had tried running away from this guilt, moving away from this guilt, trying to cover up this guilt, him and his brothers. But then at the end of the day, all he could do was be transparent. And for us, as Christians, if you want to defeat guilt, you have to confess. You got you to confess. The first word in our mission statement at Restoration Church, our vision is people following Jesus. The first word that we have is, is transparency. And we, it's transparency, community, and change. And, and we can make it a little bit longer of a statement. I want a transparency, community, and change because that's easy to remember. But uh, the full thing is transparency. I'll just say the first sentence. Transparency with Christ and with others. We need to confess to Jesus and to others. We need to be transparent with Jesus and others. We need to confess to Jesus and others. It's important that we bring our issues to the cross. We bring our issues to Jesus who knows everything already, so we might as well tell him everything already. If we can be transparent with him, then we can have community with one another and with him, and that is where change happens. We have transparency with Jesus. We come to him and say, look, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm guilty. These are the things I've done. And then we go to the people who it's affected. Sin doesn't just affect us. It affects everyone around us especially the ones closest to us, whether it makes you uh, short-tempered, whether it makes you so busy, whether it makes you have, have shallow relationships, whatever it is, it affects people around you, and they need to be let in on that, and, and we need to confess our sins to one another as well. We need to confess our sins to one another. We need to confess our sins to Jesus. That gives us transparency. I think of, I'm sorry, this is kind of silly, but it reminds me of a, of a Weezer song, the sweater song. You know Weezer, the, the kind of silly nerdy band in, from the 90s and the 2000s? They're still around, apparently. Um, they had this song called the sweater song. And uh, in that song, it always, it, it, it always made me sad. Uh, in, in one line of the song, it says um, the, the lead singer is talking to his dad, uh, who apparently did something to him, left him, they were abandoned, whatever. And he says, you cleaned up, found Jesus, or so I heard. He doesn't want to have a relationship with him. Sure, good, good job, dad, you found Jesus, but you still left me here, and I'm hurt. And so many times we're like, wow, I've, I've washed my sins clean. Jesus has washed me clean. Now nothing, nobody's got anything on me now. It's like, oh, brother, where art thou? Ain't nobody got nothing on me now. And it's like, yeah, but you still did crimes. You still need to confess to those things. And you still, you may be good before God, but he wants you to tell people around you. In fact, there's other scripture that says that if you go to the temple to give your offering to God and you're reminded of a sin against a brother, drop everything, go make amends with him, confess to him, ask forgiveness, then come back and give your offering. That's how much God cares about us being transparent with one another. It's not enough just to confess to him. We have to confess to those around us. We have to confess to those around us. And, and I know that's a scary th thought process. It's like, I need to tell the Savior of the world. I need to tell the God, the creator of everything, of all of my stuff, because that's vulnerable. And it's scary to be vulnerable with people. It's scary to be vulnerable with God. It's scary to be vulnerable with people because you're giving them something that they could bash over your head with. You're giving them something where they could be like, um, yeah, I'm going to use that as a weapon now. And now there has to be some sort of trust where we're, I'm, I'm giving this to you and I'm going to trust that you're not going to hit me over the face with it. How, how much trust that takes for the, for, the, for the creator of the world to say, uh, God, I, I'm going to trust you with this. Please don't. 
kill me with this. And here's the good news. I want to just read some scripture to you. But what happens when we confess, when we find our freedom in Christ? First one is 1 John 1.9. I'm just going to go through these. If you want to write them down, you certainly can. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us. We can take that to the bank. All right, James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So if you want to, like we have to confess our sins to one one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It was this whole section on, on healing, but I wanted to just bring that little verse out. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for healing and, and, and it'll happen. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, to a yoke of guilt. Do not, do not submit to that guilt anymore because we've been set free. For freedom Christ has set us free. So it's for freedom's sake that we are free. So stand firm and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't submit again to sin because Jesus has conquered it for you. All we have to do is confess it to him. John 3:16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's freedom in that. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John 8.36 says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Do you see what happens when we confess? Are you seeing a theme? Uh, John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to kill, to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Ephesians 1 7, this is the last one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Through the blood of Jesus we have forgiveness. Through the payment that he made on the cross, we are now free from guilt. We are now no longer standing in condemnation. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, he came to save the world. And we can take that to the bank so we can be transparent with him and know that no amount of restitution, nothing we can do can ever add to the salvation. We can't work our way out of the guilt. We can't buy our way out of guilt. We can't drink our way out of guilt. We can't, um, we can't work to earn our approval. We can't serve our way out of guilt. The only way to get out of guilt is to confess. If we think that we can bring anything to the table, if we think that we can somehow uh, conjure up enough good work, enough things, enough anything to, 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 to get rid of our guilt, we're sadly mistaken because it's like this. If, uh, uh, here's a statement that I can make. Uh, it's like saying, so me bringing anything to the table uh, when it comes to getting rid of guilt, me bring anything to the table with Jesus is like saying, me and Elon Musk, yeah, we've got like $297 billion together. <laughs> right? Like, okay, he's got $297 billion and I've got a little bit of change. Like, saying it like that is like, I'm not bringing much to that equation. I'm bringing pretty much zero to that equation, even more so when it comes to Jesus. There's nothing I can bring to that equation except my confession. And man, 
When we do that confession, it's not 297 billion that we get. It's, it's, it's everything we could have asked for according to his will and according to his purposes. We get to live in freedom. The brothers here had nothing. They could do nothing. They had to wait for judgment. And their confession, their plea, brings out the mercy and the grace of Joseph. There's nothing. We have no power over this. We have no control over this. It's the grace of Jesus and his grace alone, his mercy and his love that sets us free. He has all the power. We have none of the power. So we just come to him, confess, and start to live a life out of a response to that. Not to make amends, not to work our way into it, but just out of a response of the gift that he's given to us. Have you trusted him with that? If so, if you're a Christian, are, 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 you, are you continually going back to a works-based model that says, oh, I, if I'm good enough, if I do this, if I do that, I'm going to do a lot better. Jesus is going to love me more if I'm, I make sure that I take care of this and that. That is the scandal of grace. And that while we were yet sinners, we talked about this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Scandal of grace. God, I pray that uh, we wouldn't be marked of a life in a famine caused by guilt, but God, we would have an abundant life marked by your love and by your forgiveness. God, may we, when we go about the world around us, that they would see life in us, not famine, but life caused by you and your love. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you've done on the cross for us. Jesus, it's for your glory, your honor, we pray all these things, and it's in your name. Amen.